Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle John's revelation of Jesus Christ. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. There is a pretty good likelihood that I'm going to get technical on you this morning. We do have coffee. Stay awake. If you get lost along the way, just throw up a flare or something. Let me know that we've lost you and we'll try to come back and get you. Last week, we read the first half and hopefully exposited the first half of Revelation 20. And so today, we're going to look at the second half of Revelation 20. Revelation 20 also gives us a clue as to where in the Old Testament John is referring. That clue is the word Gog and Magog, or probably more correctly pronounced Magog. So we're going to look at Revelation 20. Turn there. We're going to read the section about the cataclysm to come after Satan has been confined to the abusos, the bottomless pit. After he's been confined there for a thousand years, he's going to be released. And then he's going to go and collect an army. And they're going to come to do war against God. And Christ is going to just mop up the floor with them. The end result being that Satan himself is cast into the lake of fire where the false prophet and the beast already are. So let's read, starting at Revelation 20, verse 7. And when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. That entire brief section that I just read is based on a vision that Ezekiel saw. We're going to read the whole of Ezekiel 38 and 39 this morning. And in order to do that, we really have to look at the larger context of Ezekiel. And then I'm even going to take the time to break down etymologically the names of the various different countries, areas, nations that we find in Ezekiel 38. So as I said, it is going to get a bit technical. 
If you think about Jerusalem, if you look at a map, if you think about Israel, if you go directly west from Israel, you're in the sea. If you go north of Israel, that's Turkey. If you go east of Israel, you're into the area of Iran, Iraq, ancient Persia. If you go south, then you end up in Egypt. The thing that all three of those areas have in common is that Turkey and Persia and Egypt have all at one time been great world empires. And while they were great empires, they held sway over Israel. In other words, Israel to this very day is surrounded by ancient enemies. And they are all dedicated to the eradication of Israel. Turn to Ezekiel 38 for a moment. Because in Ezekiel 38 and 39, what we're going to discover is that the countries that are gathered to go do war at Jerusalem, that are ultimately destroyed by fire from heaven, all of those nations make up Turkey and Persia and Egypt. The ancient enemies, the ancient kingdoms that one more time are going to turn on the people of God. Now it's almost impossible to start looking at Ezekiel 38 without going back to Ezekiel 37 because the vision that Ezekiel has had actually begins in chapter 37 verse 1. The hand of the Lord was upon me And he brought me out by the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of a valley and it was full of dry bones. That's the beginning of the vision. Chapter 38 starts, and the word of the Lord came to me saying, but that's the same thing you see back in verse 15. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, verse 11, and he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? So there is this continuation of the vision from chapter 37 into chapter 38 into chapter 39, and you don't see the introduction of a new vision until chapter 40, in the 25th year of our exile at the beginning of the year, on the 10th of the month, in the 14th year, the city was taken, and on that same day, the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me there in a vision, and then God showed him the land of Israel." Chapter 37, 38, and 39 compose one entire vision that Ezekiel had. And what you're going to notice about that vision is that it has a sequence to it. And what a surprise, the sequence is exactly like the sequence that we've been seeing for the last couple of weeks. Repeatedly, the sequence is God has scattered Israel. God is going to regather Israel God is going to establish the kingdom. And then Ezekiel adds this cataclysmic war where the nations are going to be gathered, where God is going to destroy them utterly, which runs exactly concurrent to what we just read in Revelation 20. So Revelation 20 is not telling us anything new or unique. Revelation 20 has a historic and biblical basis And that's what we're going to look at this morning. You should be familiar with the beginning of chapter 37. That's the Valley of Dry Bones. 
We have talked about the Valley of Dry Bones a lot here at GCA because so many people get it wrong. And what I mean by get it wrong is they get it wrong. And that's exactly what I mean by that. Because you've heard messages, you've heard sermons where people have said that Ezekiel and his dry bones is a type and a shadow of what it's like to preach the word of God to people who are dead and can't hear it. And then when you preach the word to them, the spirit comes in them and it quickens and awakens them. And so that is about as far as you ever hear about the Valley of Dry Bones. Or you've heard the song, the knee bones connected to the... No? I just said the knee bones connected to the ankle bone. That's, I know. It's a really short guy, is all I'm saying. But God interprets the Valley of Dry Bones. Starting in verse 11... God says, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. So that's the God interpretation. It doesn't matter what human interpretation people apply to it. God's own interpretation of God's own vision is, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope has perished and we are completely cut off. Therefore, prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and I will cause you to come up out of your graves, my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. If that sounds familiar, it's very much like what we talked about last week out of the book of Revelation and the importance of resurrection language. Verse 13, then you will know that I am Yahweh, I am the Lord, when I've opened your graves and caused you to come up out of your graves, my people, and I will put my spirit within you and you will come to life and I will place you in your own land. And then you will know that I, Yahweh, have spoken it and done it, declares the Lord. After that, God gives Ezekiel two sticks. On one stick, he is to write For Joseph, for Ephraim and his brethren, that would be the northern tribes, the ten northern tribes. The other stick, Judah and his brethren, that would be the southern tribes. Then God tells Ezekiel to take those two sticks, put them in his hand together, and when people say to you, what is the meaning of these two sticks, you will then say to them this. Thus says the Lord God, this is verse 21. Behold, I will take the sons of Israel from among the nations where they have gone, and I will gather them from every side, and I will bring them to their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountain of Israel, and one king will be king for all of them. And they will no longer be two nations, and they will no longer be divided into two kingdoms. And they will no longer defile themselves with their idols or with their detestable things or with any of their transgressions. But I will deliver them from all of their dwelling places in which they have sinned, and I will cleanse them, and they will be my people, and I will be their God. And so there is this continual promise of the restoration of all 12 collective tribes of Israel. And then they are going to be established in their own land And then starting at verse 24, we hear about a kingdom. Does this all sound familiar? It's the consistent story that we've been seeing all the way through the Bible. Starting at verse 24, and my servant David will be king over them. 
the lineage, the house of David. And they will all have one shepherd, and they will walk in my ordinances, and they will keep my statutes and observe them. Can that be said of Israel at this very moment? Nope. Can that be said of Israel anywhere in history? Nope. No. Well, this is all prophetic then, that God is going to regather the 12 tribes, reestablish them in their own land. They will be his people. He will be their God. Christ himself, David's greater son, will rule over them. Verse 25, and they will live on the land that I gave to Jacob, my servant. That's the very same land that Abraham was promised. That's the very same land that Joshua brought them back to. That's the very same land of Israel that exists in the Middle East right now. They shall live on the land that I gave to Jacob, my servant, in which your fathers live. Now we know exactly what land that is. The very same land that has historically always been yours, where your forefathers have lived. And they will live on it, they and their sons and their sons' sons, forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. And I will make a covenant of peace with them. And it will be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them and I will multiply them. And I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place also will be with them and I will be their God and they will be my people. And the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. The continuation of that vision is what we call chapter 38. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, son of man, set your face against Gog. So after the thousand year kingdom mentioned in the book of Revelation, what we just read in Revelation 20 was that Satan is going to be released and that he's going to go and gather nations against Jerusalem and they are referred to as Gog and Magog. Here is the only other place in the Bible where you read about that very event by those very names. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, set your face toward Gog, the land of Magog, the head or the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and prophesy against him. Okay, so who is that? Who are these nations, and who is Gog, and who is Magog? What we know for certain is this correlates exactly, precisely, and by language and by history. It connects with Revelation 20. And so that is why I understand Revelation 20 in light of what Ezekiel predicts. Son of man, set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog. The prince of Rosh is the translation here in the NASB. Rosh is a word that means the head or the chief. And so the King James, as well as the uh, Legacy Standard Bible, several other translations, translated as the head or the chief of Meshach and Tubal. Prophesy against him and say, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against you, Gog, chief prince of Meshach. And Tubal. So whoever Gog is, God is directly against him. And I will turn you around, and I will put hooks in your jaws, and I will bring you out. And all your army, your horses, and your horsemen, all of them splendidly attired, 
and a great company with buckler and shield and all wielding swords. And now he names them Persia and Ethiopia and put with them, all of them with shield and helmet, Gomer with all its troops, Beth Tagarma from the remote parts of the north with all its troops, many peoples with you. Be prepared and prepare yourself and all your companies that are assembled about you and be a guard for them. After many days, you will be summoned. What remarkably sovereign language. After many days, I'm going to call you to this war. I'm going to call you to this conflict, which we know from Revelation 20, once they are all assembled, God burns them all down. That's how against Gog and his armies God is. But notice the language. In the latter years, you will come into the land that is restored from the sword, whose inhabitants have been gathered from many nations to the mountains of Israel, which had been a continual waste, but its people were brought out from the nations, and they are living securely, all of them. And you will go up, and you will come like a storm, Revelation 20 says, like the sands of the sea. And you will be like a cloud covering the land, you and all your troops, and many peoples with you. And thus says the Lord God, it will come about on that day that thoughts will come into your mind, and you will devise an evil plan, and you will say, I will go up against the land of unwalled villages, I will go against those who are at rest, that live securely, all of them living without walls and having no bars or gates, to capture spoil and to seize plunder, to turn your hand against the waste places which have now become inhabited, and against the people who are gathered from the nations, who have acquired cattle and goods, and who live at the center of the world." Okay, so what do we know so far? What we know from the end of chapter 37 is God has regathered Israel out of all the places that he has scattered them. He has put them in their land, made a covenant of peace with them. They are living securely. They have David's greater son ruling over them exactly like we read in Revelation 20 last week. Followed by this time of conflict when the nations around Israel are going to be gathered, and we know from Revelation 20 that God is going to fight for Israel and destroy all these armies. So the language here in Ezekiel 38 is very clear. Apparently, Gog and all his armies, I just, I love the sovereign language. It's going to come into your mind. You're going to have a thought by your own free will. You're going to decide for yourself that you're going to come up against my people who are living at peace, who don't have any walls, who have plenty of cattle. You're going to decide that you're going to go there and take a spoil from them. You're going to capture a spoil. You're going to seize a plunder. You're going to turn your hand against those waste places that have now become inhabited and against the people who were gathered from all the nations. Who's that? That's the 12 tribes of Israel, the very same people who were represented in the Valley of Dry Bones, who God said, this is all the armies of Israel. The very same group of people who Ezekiel had two sticks in his hands, the northern tribes and the southern tribes, 
And then God interpreted it as they're all going to be one nation. They're all going to have one king. David is going to rule over them from Jerusalem. And then Gog and his armies are going to go attack. Verse 13, Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish with all its villages will say to you, have you come to capture a spoil? Have you assembled your company to seize plunder and carry away silver and gold and to take away cattle and goods to capture great spoil? Therefore prophesy, son of man, and say to Gog, thus says the Lord God, on that day when my people Israel are living securely, will you not know it? And you will come from your place out of the remote parts of the north, you and many people with you, all of them riding on horses, a great assembly and a mighty army, and you will come up against my people Israel like a cloud to cover the land. And it will come about in the last days that I shall bring you against my land in order that the nations may know me when I shall be sanctified through you in their eyes, O Gog. Again, really, really sovereign. God saying, I'm going to collect you. I'm going to collect all the ancient enemies of Israel. I'm going to gather them into the valleys around Israel. And I'm going to destroy them utterly as I defend my own people. And I'm going to cause you to come up. I'm going to summon you. I'm going to bring you from the remotest parts of the north to come down on my people Israel. And you're going to cover the land. And that's going to come about in the last day. For what reason? So that God can show the goyim, the nations, everybody that he's God. That's really sovereign. Also, by the way, has any of this language in chapter 38, outside of defining the particular nations, outside of that, is there any narrative language here that's confusing? Not a bit. None of it needs to be interpreted. On its face, it plainly says what it says. And God repeatedly calls Israel, my people Israel. They will be my people. I will be their God. I will plant them back in the land that their forefathers were on, that land that I gave Jacob. They're going to live on it securely forever. I'm going to defend them. I'm going to fight for them. This language couldn't be more precise and more clear. Starting at verse 17, thus says the Lord God, are you the one of whom I spoke in former days through my servants, the prophets of Israel, who prophesied in those days for many years that I would bring you against Israel? It's just remarkable. God identifying them collectively and saying, you're the very ones I prophesied about. The reason you're here now and the reason you're doing what you're doing is because I already foretold you would do it through my prophets. And in fact, in that day, I'm going to ask you, aren't you the very people that I prophesied about? Talk about being held guilty. God is going to say, I know who you are. I know what you're here to do. I know you're here to take a plunder and a spoil. And I know it so well that I've already had my prophets prophesy about it. And it will come about on that day when Gog comes against the land of Israel 
declares the Lord God, that my fury will mount up in my anger and my heat, my zeal, and in my blazing wrath. I declare that on that day, there will surely be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. Notice the language here of zeal, of heat, of burning anger, of blazing wrath. No surprise then that in Revelation 20, he burns them all up with fire. It's the exact same response from God. Verse 20, and the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and the beasts of the field and all the creeping things that creep on the earth and all the men who are on the face of the earth will shake at my presence. The mountains will also be thrown down. The steep pathways will collapse and every wall will fall to the ground, apparently as a result of this earthquake. And I shall call for a sword against him on all my mountains, declares the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother. And with pestilence and with blood, I shall enter into judgment with him. And I shall reign on him and on his troops and on the many peoples who are with him. A torrential rain with hailstone and fire and brimstone. Exactly like we read in Revelation 20. And I shall magnify myself, and I shall sanctify myself, and I shall make myself known in the sight of many nations, and they will know that I am Yahweh, the sovereign God. Okay, so God just told you what his plan is. It was predicted in Ezekiel. God even takes the time to point out, I predicted all of this through my prophets, like Ezekiel. John picks it up. And repeats it yet again. John repeats it in shorthand because it's already written here in Ezekiel. He is simply confirming that Ezekiel 37 through 39 is true. And that God, having prophesied it, is going to bring it to pass. Because it is all about God's glory and his demonstration that he is the one and only sovereign God. Now before we read chapter 39, I promised you that we would go through and identify some of these nations. And as we do, what you're going to discover is that they are from Turkey on the north, that they're from Persia on the east, and that they're from Egypt, and that they're from Ethiopia in the south. This little pamphlet that I hold in my hand was written by Fred Zaspel. I've met Fred a couple of times in my life. Fred's a very serious student of scripture and very good with ancient languages. Fred used to write position papers. And then once he had written these position papers, he would put them into these kind of little booklets for distribution. And so fortunately, I have a copy of it. Some of Fred's material is online. Some of it is not. I don't know if this particular one is online. It's called The Nations of Ezekiel 38 and 39, Who Will Participate in the Battle? The purpose of this paper, Fred writes, is to identify the nations who will be participants in the end-time battle described in Ezekiel 38. The terms which we will consider are Gog, Magog, Rosh, Meshach, Tubal, Persia, Ethiopia, Libya, Gomer, and Tamarga. When interpreting Ezekiel 38, 
it has become popular to identify Gomer as Germany. And the terms Rosh, Gog, Magog, Meshach, and Tubal as being somewhere in Russia. That is a very common assumption if you're familiar with the Left Behind books. I hope you're not. But if you're familiar with any of that, that, that's where they go. Fred writes, these terms refer instead to a Near Eastern coalition of nations which will seek to destroy Israel. And no surprise, this is not Fred, this is me, no surprise, what we're going to find is they are the very same ancient enemies of Israel. The same ones we've been reading about all the way through the entirety of the Bible. Two principles of hermeneutics have direct bearing upon this study. First is the importance of literalism, Fred writes. Terms must be interpreted in their primary, ordinary, usual meaning. The temptation to apply them to something far removed from the author without explicit exegetical warrant must be carefully resisted. Boy, you know I agree with that. (laughs) Fred writes, this leads to the second principle that has to be emphasized, historical interpretation. This simply means that the passage must be considered within the frame of reference of the original author and the original recipients of that writing. To carry it beyond that requires, again, some explicit biblical warrant. The terms found in Ezekiel 38 that need to be considered here. From the KJV, they are Gog, Magog, Rosh, Meshach, Tubal, Persia, Ethiopia, Libya, Gomer, and Tamarga, and of these, some are very easily identifiable. The more obvious nations are going to be treated first, and then we'll proceed to the more difficult. Libya, which is also known as Put, remains to this very day, bearing that same name, lying just west of Egypt. Persia, also remaining to this very present, is known today as Iran. Biblical Ethiopia, known as Cush, is not the Ethiopia of today, but rather a land just south of Egypt known as northern Sudan. Tamarga presents only a little more difficulty. Now, what I can't express to you without writing it is that the Hebrew language does not contain vowels. The Hebrew language is all consonant sounds. Sometimes you'll see little breath marks, but as a written language, it is consonants. Therefore, Fred expresses in each of these names the consonants, and that will become important as we continue to look at the current interpretation of these names. For instance, Tamarga in English letters, would just be T-G-R-M. And so all of the vowel sounds are added through pronunciation. But the consonants, and this is very important, the consonants don't change. Even as the vowel sounds might change, the consonants don't change. So Tamarga presents only a little bit more difficulty. Tamarga 
was the descendant of Noah through Japheth and then through Gomer. You read about him in Genesis 10, verses 1 to 3. Ryrie states, the southeastern part of Turkey near the Syrian border makes up Tamarga. And that identification is generally acknowledged by everyone. So, so far of the easy nations, Libya, Persia, Ethiopia, we know Persia to the east. We know Ethiopia to the south. Tagarma is to the north, modern-day Turkey. And then there's Gomer. The letters are G-M-R in English letters. Gomer has often been mistaken as referring to Germany because of the supposed similarity of linguistic construction. But that position has two serious errors. One of those is that the R and the M would have to be reversed. Gomer and Germany have different letter construction, different consonant construction. Ezekiel wrote GMR, not GRM. That reversal is unwarranted logistically. And furthermore, this similarity and inversion is based on a comparison of Ezekiel's GMR with the modern English from the Latin designation of Deutschland. So clearly the similarity is only superficial. Those two errors do, by the way, rule out absolutely any possibility of identifying Gomer as Germany. However, GMR is a well-known city to the ancient world. It's known as Gomari of northern Central Asia Minor, known as Cappadocia. These people are also known as the Cimmerians, and this seems to be obviously the simplest and most obvious interpretation. The identification of Rosh presents some difficulty. Some understand it to be a proper noun referring to Russia rather than as a simple noun or adjective meaning the head or the chief, which, as I mentioned, is the way that the King James renders it. It's also the way that several translations, including the Legacy Standard Bible, interpret it, because it is an ancient word that can mean the head or the chief. Although this interpretation may be allowable on grammatical grounds, it suffers from several problems. He's talking about Rosh being Russia. The first is that there is absolutely no place on earth that is called by the name Rosh. That makes it a little difficult to locate. Of all the occurrences of Meshach and Tubal in the Bible and even in non-biblical writings, they are never associated with a place called Rosh. As the translation, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal would suggest. There are linguistic problems here as well. As Unger admits, linguistic evidence for the equation of Rosh with Russia is confessedly only presumptive. The first problem is that the similarity in the sound has no consonantal configuration. All that means is RS with a breath mark over it is Rush, whereas Russia is actually R-U-S. Therefore, the consonants don't even line up. That's Fred's point. 
The term Russia comes from the late 11th century AD. It comes from the Viking word Rus. Again, the consonants would just be RS. So reading modern words and spellings into ancient Semitic terminology is to ignore all known linguistic norms. In other words, Rosh ain't Russia. Since there's no place named Rosh associated with Meshach or Tubal, and since the attempted equation of it with modern Russia is obviously fallacious, it is easiest to understand the word as meaning chief or prince. And it's used in reference to Meshach and Tubal, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. And this is also the reading that you find in the Targum and in the Aquila and in the Vulgate. So let's talk about Meshach. Meshach, M-S with the little aspirith mark over it, and K, those three letters make up Meshach. It's often mistaken as being a modern Russian city, Moscow. That's the popular rendering of it these days. If you've spent any time, and again, I hope you have not, but if you've spent any time looking at the whole left behind thing, it's all about Russia and Moscow. and So it's often mistaken for the modern city of Moscow, the capital and the largest city of the Soviet Union. Again, this identification, as even Ryrie admits, is completely unfounded. The problems are similar to those that are found in the identification of Gomer with Germany. The similarity is based on a comparison of MS with the asperus sound with the English designation of Moscow, but the Russian word is Moskva, which means that the consonants are M, actual S, KV. So there's no similarity grammatically between the two of them. Am I boring you yet? No. Okay. However, this word Mushki, that place, is Central and Western Asia Minor. It's known in the classics like Homer, and that actually fits very well with that lettering and its location. These people were very well known to Ezekiel, and so this seems clearly to be the easiest interpretation of Meshach. Tubal, which is T-B-L in English letters, is commonly identified with the Russian city of Tubalsk. Although that would be allowable linguistically, it's not the best hermeneutically. Ezekiel would know nothing of Tobolsk or Moscow or Germany, for that matter, because they didn't exist. He was, however, well acquainted with Tobol of Eastern Asia Minor. Now, granted, God could have revealed Tobolsk and Moscow and Germany to the ancient prophet, but to assume so when Tobal was so well known to him is just unjustified apart from some biblical warrant. To assume that a place that is unknown to the prophet, like Tobolsk, when clear options are also available, is both hermeneutically and exegetically untenable. Tobal is clearly preferred. Hang with me. Gog is extremely difficult to identify. 
One plausible explanation is that Gog is merely an official title or a general designation for any enemy or all enemies of God's people. This interpretation is based on the Septuagint rendering of several kingly names in the Old Testament. Perhaps Gog is only a derivative of the related word Magog. So then what's Magog? Magog is a descendant of Noah through Japheth. We read about it in Genesis 10, the first two verses. Those who see it as Russia appeal to Josephus, who once said Magog founded those that from him were named Magagites, but who are by the Greeks called Scythians, who live north and northeast of the Black Sea. And the fact of the matter is that actually nothing is known about Magog. So even though there's the Josephus reference to the Scythians who may have gone by the name of Magagites, which would have put them north of the Black Sea in the area of Russia, the truth is we just historically don't know who they are or where they ever settled. Although Magog cannot be identified specifically, it seems that scripture does give us a clue as to his general vicinity. Now follow this. First, Gog is known to be an Anatolian name. Further, if Meshach and Tubal have been correctly identified as being part of Asia Minor, then Magog must be part of Asia Minor as well because they, Meshach and Tubal, lived in the neighborhood of Magog. Because Ezekiel 38.2 says that Gog is the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and that's in the land of Magog. So wherever Gog and Magog are, Gog is apparently a title. It is apparently a kingly title and a collective title that God uses for all the enemies of God and his people. Magog, whatever that is, wherever that is, is in the same area as Meshach and Tubal because Gog is the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. Does that make sense? They're all in the same area. Okay, where does that place them? Places them directly north of Israel. And where does Ezekiel 38 say the army comes from? From the places of the north, down on Israel. So in summary, says Fred, Magog is not able to be specifically identified unless it is a general reference to the land of Asia Minor. So to conclude, and I only read selected portions here that I just highlighted like mad, it's been shown on the basis of exegesis, hermeneutics, linguistics, and historical anthropology that number one, Gomer is not Germany, but rather it is Gomare or Gomari. Meshach cannot be Moscow, but it is Mushki. Tubal is not Tobolsk, but Tobal. Gog is probably a person. Magog is unidentifiable, except as a general reference, the land of Gog, and that is a reference to Asia Minor. Rosh is not a reference to a place, but it is to be translated chief or head. And the terms the north parts 
and the northern quarters cannot mean Germany, but within Ezekiel's frame of reference, it refers to modern Turkey. What Ezekiel prophesied then is an end time battle involving the following nations coming against the land of Israel. Turkey, which is Meshach, Tubal, and Magog, Gomer, Tamarga, and then Iran, ancient Persia, and Sudan, or Ethiopia, or Cush, and Libya. In other words, these are all nations that surround Israel to this very day. No surprise that all the way back here in Ezekiel's day, he would already predict and prophesy accurately that all those nations gathered around Israel are going to gather collectively again to come against Israel. It's the same thing we're seeing in the geopolitics of the world to this very day. Just recently, Iran promised to nuke Israel off the map. No surprise, Ezekiel said they were going to do it. Remarkable. Don't tell me the Bible is not relevant. It's talking about the world politics of this very day. We are now back in Ezekiel 39. And you, son of man, prophesy against Gog and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. And I will turn you around, and I will drive you on, and I will take you up from the remotest parts of the north and bring you against the mountains of Israel. And I shall strike your bow from your left hand, and I will dash down your arrows from your right hand. And you will fall on the mountains of Israel, you and all your troops, and the peoples who are with you, And I shall give you as food for every kind of predatory bird or beast of the field. And you will fall in the open field. For it is I who have spoken it, declares Yahweh, the sovereign God. And I shall send fire upon Magog and those who inhabit the coastlands in safety. And they will know that I am the Lord. That's exactly what Revelation says. He's going to burn them all with fire. Why is he doing all this? Why is God accomplishing and prophesying these things? Verse 7, and my holy name I shall make known in the midst of my people Israel. And I shall not let my holy name be profaned anymore. And the nations, the goyim, the Gentiles will know that I am Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel. Behold, it is coming, and it shall be done, declares the Lord God. That is the day of which I have spoken. And then those who inhabit the cities of Israel will go out and make fires with the weapons and burn them, both shields and bucklers, bows and arrows, war clubs and spears. They'll burn them for seven years. They will make fires of them. They will not take wood from the field nor gather firewood from the forest, for they will make fires out of the weapons. And they will take the spoil of those who despoiled them and seize the plunder of those who plundered them, declares the Lord God. And it will come about on that day that I shall give Gog a burial ground there in Israel, the valley of those who pass by east of the sea, And it will block off the passers-by. 
So they will bury Gog there with all of his multitude, and they will call it the Valley of Haman Gog, which means the valley of the whole company, the whole crowd of Gog. For seven months, the house of Israel will be burying them in order to cleanse the land. Even all the people of the land will bury them, and it will be to their renown on that day that I glorify myself, declares the Lord God. And they will set apart men who will constantly pass through the land, burying those who are passing through, even those who are left on the surface of the ground in order to cleanse it. At the end of seven months, they will make a search. And as those who pass through the land pass through and anyone sees a man's bone, then he will set up a marker by it until the barriers have buried it in the valley of Haman Gog. And even the name of that city will be Hamona, which means the multitude. And as for you, son of man, thus says the Lord God, speak to every kind of bird and every kind of beast of the field and say, assemble and come, gather from every side to my sacrifice, which I am going to sacrifice for you as a great sacrifice on the mountains of Israel, that they may come and eat flesh and drink blood. And you will eat flesh of mighty men and drink the blood of the princes of the earth as though they were rams and lambs and goats and bulls, all of them the fatlings of Bashan. So you will eat fat until you are glutted, until you're stuffed, and you will drink blood until you are drunk from my sacrifice, which I have sacrificed for you. And you will be glutted at my table with horses and charioteers and the mighty men and all the men of war, declares the Lord God. And I shall set my glory among the nations, and all the nations will see my judgment which I have executed, and my hand which I have laid on them. And the house of Israel will know that I am Yahweh their God from that day onward. And the nations will know that the house of Israel went into exile for their iniquity because they acted treacherously against me, and I hid my face from them, and so I gave them into the hand of their adversaries and all of them fell by the sword according to their uncleanness and according to their transgressions I dealt with them and I hid my face from them therefore says the Lord God now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel. Remember how this vision began with the valley of dry bones and God saying, this is the whole house of Israel which I will raise up on the last day. The vision ends with God declaring, I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and I will have mercy on the whole house of Israel and I shall be jealous for my holy name. And they shall forget their disgrace, and they'll forget all their treachery which they perpetrated against me when they live securely on their own land with no one to make them afraid. And when I bring them back from all the peoples, and I gather them from the lands of all their enemies, then I shall be sanctified through them in the sight of many nations. And then they will know that I am the Lord their God because I made them to go into the exile among the nations and then I gathered them again to their own land and I will leave none of them out there any longer. And I will not hide my face from them any longer 
for I shall have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel, declares the Lord God. Okay, that's one big vision from Ezekiel. That's what John is referencing in Revelation 20 by that quick reference to Gog and Magog. Turn back to Revelation 20. I have five minutes, and I'm going to use it. And I'm going to take all of it and add 25. That's a joke. I'm not going to do that. It's okay. Don't you me. (laughs) See now if this part of Revelation 20, after everything we've read this morning, I know that was a lot of reading. I know that was a lot of listening on your part. I hope that you got the big picture out of it, even if you don't remember the details. See if Revelation 20 now makes more sense. When the thousand years were completed, Satan will be released from his prison And he will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. They came up on the broad plain of the earth, and they surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil, who deceived them? was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also. They'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. And I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in these books, according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the Lamb's book of life, written before the foundation of the world, that's how John referred to it earlier in this very same book. If anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the second death, into the lake of fire. Pretty sobering, but also what I want you to see out of that is God's absolute and completely sovereign control of human history. Because in Ezekiel's time, he said exactly what nations were going to do what at the end of time. And we just happen to be living in a time right now where we're seeing that exact configuration of nations over in the Middle East. God is in complete control of human history. That's the point of everything we looked at this morning. That, I'm here to tell you, is a God you can trust. That is a God you can rest your eternity on. 
That is a God who loved you with an everlasting love and wrote names down in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. And you are told explicitly in Revelation 20 that if your name is in the Lamb's book of life, you will not participate in the second death, which means you don't have to worry about the lake of fire. And what good news that is. And yet look at the number of people that God is willing to judge, the number of people that he is willing to burn, the number of people that he is willing to cast into outer darkness, the number of people he's willing to put into the lake of fire where they will be tormented day and night forever. Look at God's willingness to judge and the remarkable grace that he won't judge you. I say, worship that God. Get down on your face in front of that God. Admit that he's God. Admit that he can do whatever he wants to do. And he's already told you what he plans to do. And he's going to do it. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.com for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.